If you have your Bible, open up to the book of Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, while you're turning there, we need to talk about Ikea furniture. Um, You know, the Lord puts many things in our lives to sanctify us, to test us. um, And I'm convinced Ikea furniture is one of those things. If you've never had the joy and privilege of assembling Ikea furniture, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. What you save in cost... You more than make up for in frustration trying to put these billion pieces together when you assemble IKEA furniture. The worst experience I've ever had with it uh, was putting together some kind of cabinet uh, type of deal a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, they don't put words in the, in the instructions, just little pictures, a little stick guy um, assembling the stuff. And you're just supposed to just figure it out and, and make sure you look at the pictures really closely. And I had, uh, you know, I was kind of cruising through this one. It was kind of coming together nicely. And I got to the very end of this cabinet where I was supposed to uh, put the doors on, I think is what I was supposed to do. And I'm on like step, I'm on like step 35 of 38. Like I'm, I'm almost there. And I go to put the, the, the doors on and there's no hole where the hinge is supposed to get screwed in like the picture says there should be. And I started looking around, start peeking. And I realized that way back in step two, I put this panel on backwards because I didn't notice really closely these microscopic holes in the pictures that they drew on these tiny instructions. And so I went from thinking I was almost across the finish line to being farther away from being done than I even thought was possible. Not only did I have to reassemble the whole thing, but I had to unassemble it to make that happen in the first place. As you know, IKEA furniture is not made to be disassembled, and so it's just a whole mess of a project. Um, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just glad my kids weren't present to watch me react to that moment. We'll just leave it at that, okay? We're in a, we're in a text this morning, we're in a passage where uh, we're going to see some people who think they are really close to the finish line when it comes to their faith, when it comes to their spirituality, when it comes to their relationship with God. We're going to meet some people who are like, man, I'm really crushing it. I'm almost there. I'm doing a great job. Uh, but what Jesus is going to do in our text today, he's going to show them, he goes, hey, actually, you're farther away than you think you are. And let me, let me show you this person who you think is a total screw-up. They're really close. And he's going to flip everything that we probably think we know and that these people certainly knew about faith on its head and show us a different way into his kingdom. And so that's where we're, where we're going this morning. We're in Mark chapter 2. We're going to be doing verses 13 through 22. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along. If not, it'll be behind me on the screen. This is what Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says that he, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came to him and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But Jesus, your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast 
while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. For no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who makes things new. We thank you for Jesus who defies expectations. And Lord, I'm especially grateful that one of the ways Jesus defies expectations is by calling people like me and everyone else in this room to follow him when we don't deserve it. And so, Lord, as we dive into this text today, would you encourage us with it? Would you challenge us with it? Would you draw us to yourself? And would you be honored in Jesus' name? Amen. This passage kind of has two movements to it, and that's going to break up our, our, our time together. Uh, first, you see Jesus calling this man Levi to be his disciples. If you remember in our passage, we've seen Jesus call some other disciples. He's, we've got the account of four disciples being called thus far, and he's going to call this man Levi to be his disciple as well. Levi uh, is going to be known as Matthew as well. So this, this man wrote the Gospel of Matthew that uh, is right before uh, this book in your Bible. And it says that Levi is a tax collector. And to us, uh, you know, nobody likes tax collectors, right? This is tax season right now. So I don't know many people who are thrilled with the IRS at the moment, right? So we kind of get what it means to be despised for being a tax collector, but in Scripture, especially in the first century, the first century Palestine, being a tax collector as a Jewish person was an absolute scandal. I mean, this was the biggest deal that could possibly take place. To be a tax collector meant selling out to the Romans who were ruling over the region. It was a betrayal of Levi's Jewish brotherhood. His name, Levi, is a Jewish name, and almost everybody who had the name Levi came from the tribe of Levi, the Levites. These are priestly people. Their, their uh, family business, their family job was to serve God in the temple and to, to be priests on behalf of the people of Israel. And now here's a guy who's left that line and is instead working for the enemy. And he's collecting taxes for the enemy. He would have had a, a booth set up, perhaps near the sea, likely collecting tariffs on goods that are traveling through the region. The way the Roman tax system worked was, uh, was pretty simple. The Romans had a tax rate that they expected, and they contracted out tax collectors to go collect their tax rate. But the way the tax collectors got paid was not by a salary from Rome, but instead Rome gave them permission to charge extra taxes and then they would keep the difference between what Rome required and what they collected. Human nature being what it is, and having the entire force of the Roman army and their authority behind you, you can imagine these tax collectors got pretty greedy. And they would charge crazy rates, uh, double and triple and quadruple what Rome was requiring, and they would stick the rest in their pockets, and they would get rich on the backs of the people that they lived in and amongst and around in their communities. Such officials, uh, people, historians tell us they were, they were considered the lowest of lowlifes in the entire community. They weren't allowed to testify in a court of law because they were considered so dishonest. They uh, were actually kicked out of the synagogue. They weren't allowed to be a part of the local church there, the local uh, faith community, because of their betrayal of their people. They were kicked out of the synagogue if you were a tax collector. 
You weren't allowed to... Um, you weren't allowed to be a judge or hold any kind of office or uh, any kind of official role in the community. And in fact, this is crazy to kind of illustrate how much these people were hated the, in, the, in the Talmud, kind of the Jewish interpretation of the law of the day. It says that it was not a sin to lie to a tax collector. It's not a sin. You get an exception. You get a break. You can't lie to anybody unless it's a tax collector. They make, they make one other exception. You can also lie to murderers, it said. Those are the only two people uh, in, the, in the Talmud says you, that you can, you can lie to without p- penalty, uh, penalty or punishment. And so here's this scandal. Jesus comes along and he meets this tax collector who would have been hated by his brethren, who would have been the ultimate outcast in his community. And Jesus says, hey, you come follow me. You come be my disciple. You come represent me to the world. You come learn from me and be my ambassador. You come write a gospel that billions of people will read and learn about me. And you come do that, Levi. It's a scandal, and it's, it's incredible, the gap between who this man, Levi, was and who Jesus was asking him to be. But Jesus doesn't just call him to be a follower. He then goes to Levi's house. Read, read back with me in, in verses 15 through 17, it says he reclined in his t- house, at a table in his house. So Jesus now goes to Levi's house, which is probably a nice house, had plenty of money. It says all the crowd was, uh, it says that many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And he's not just hanging out with this Levi character, he's hanging out with all Levi's friends. It says sinners and tax collectors. We've, we've talked about what it means to be a tax collector. This word for sinners, it's probably best translated to be just outcasts. These are people who, who had such a blatant disregard for God's law that they didn't even attempt to keep God's law. And so they were hated by the Jewish leaders of the day, by the Pharisees of the day, because it's not that they were missing the mark, it's that they weren't even trying. They had such blatant disregard for God's rules and God's laws. And these are the people that Jesus is eating with. The Pharisees of the day had an elaborate set of rules that were designed to keep and maintain their ceremonial cleanliness so that they could be righteous before God, so they could be holy before God, so they could be in good standing with God. And the Pharisees get a, a bad rap in Scripture, and rightfully so. Whenever you meet the Pharisees in the Bible, you can guarantee that Jesus is not going to be cheering them on, right? Anytime you meet the Pharisees in the Bible, Jesus has a harsh word for these people. They get a bad rap. But the premise that they started from was good, and it was right. The the Pharisees understood from Scripture that God is holy. And that word holy just means set apart. It means pure. It means righteous. God is holy. They understood that from studying the Bible. They also understood from studying the Bible that in order to be accepted by God, a person had to be holy and righteous and pure too. And so they, they see this problem arising. We've got a holy God. We've got unholy people. And so we've got to close this gap a little bit, they're thinking. We've got to figure out ways to be more righteous, more holy, do more right things so we can get closer to God so God would accept us. And so the Bible has plenty of rules, especially in the Old Testament. It has tons of laws and, and regulations for food and for sacrifices, for temple worship, for relationships, for all sorts of things. And they said, we're going to follow all of those. And they actually said, hey, we're, we're not just going to follow those. We're going to add some interpretations to those laws that tighten the bounds even more. So we can be even more holy, even more righteous, even less in danger of doing the wrong thing. Where did they go wrong, though? First, by adding laws and rules that God doesn't require, right? 
Church people love doing that, don't we? We love adding rules that aren't in the Bible and telling people, hey, you can't do this. And you say, well, where does it say that in the Bible? Well, it doesn't actually, but you really shouldn't. It's like, oh, okay. So they did that, and that's, that's not a good idea. Caution you against that. But their big mistake, the Pharisees' big mistake is that they thought that they were succeeding in making themselves righteous. That's where the Pharisees went wrong. They thought that all their rule following, all their legalism, all their fasting, all their giving, all their prayers, all their going to synagogue, all of that was working. We're getting closer to God. We're becoming more like him. We're closing the gap. This is why Jesus was constantly after them. His mission was to show them that despite their best efforts, they were not righteous people. Despite their rule following, despite their, their prayers, despite being in the synagogue, every time it was open, they were not making themselves more righteous. And they should have known this as teachers of the law. The Psalms, which they had at this time, number 14, verses 2 and 3, says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And verse 3 says, They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The Lord looks at these people's righteousness, their actions, and goes, you haven't hit the mark at all. You haven't even moved the ball an inch down the field. How could it be true? How could it be that these people who fasted twice a week, who memorized massive portions of Scripture, who taught others the law, who prayed constantly, how could they not be righteous? If they can't be righteous, then no one can be, right? That's Jesus' point. That's Jesus' point. In fact, he says as much. Jesus tells him he's trying to show them that their actions and their behavior are not what counts. Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe just means warning. Warning to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus says on the outside, it looks like you're crushing it. On the outside, it looks like you're doing everything you're supposed to do. On the outside, it looks like you're a righteous person, but on the inside, you're still dead. Jesus has a word in this passage for people like the Pharisees, we would call them, we wouldn't call them Pharisees today, we would just call you self-righteous, if that's you. Jesus has a word for the self-righteous. There are people, both inside and outside of the church, who are convinced that, if, that they are good enough to get to God and get to heaven on their own. There are people inside and outside the church that believe that. In the church, they suppose their religious activity is what makes them good enough. I go to church often enough. I volunteer I go to Bible study when I can. I even give them my money. I'm doing all the stuff. I'm taking all the steps. I'm doing all the action. And so surely that is making me righteous before God. I've even been baptized. That's what you told me to do, God. And so I did it. And so surely that makes me acceptable to you. There are people outside the church, too, who are just as self-righteous, right? They, 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 they maybe give to charity. They, they, they work in a soup kitchen from time to time. When the, when the lady at the checkout counter asks if you would like to round up to make a donation to X, Y, or Z, they say yes every time, right? And they're like, man, I'm a good person. I'm doing it. I don't need this religious mumbo-jumbo to make me 
safe. I'm good. I'm living a good life. I'm a good person. I'm following the rules. And here's what this passage would have to say to the self-righteous person, both inside the church and outside the church. Your good behavior will not save you. Your good behavior will not save you. Anyone who thinks that they can do enough to bridge the gap between them and God has grossly underestimated the size of that gap. We're severely downplaying how sinful we are, and we're totally forgetting how holy God is. This gap can't be made up by good behavior, by good works, by doing the right thing, by going to church a few times or giving a few dollars. This gap can't be bridged by anything that we can do. The God that the prophet Isaiah had to hide from when he had a vision of him and declare, I'm unclean, I'm from a people of unclean, woe is me, he says. This same God, when Moses asked to see him, God says, no, you can't because you'll die. The best I can do is I can show you my back as I'm passing by you. That God, we think we're going to bridge the gap by going to church a few times a month? We're crazy. That God's going to look at us with a thought life that we have, with the things that we view on screens, with the substances that we use, the way we talk to people, the way we treat others, that God's going to look at us and go, yeah, you're pretty close to me, come hang out. We're crazy if we think that, aren't we? Theologian R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, which I am convinced every Christian ought to read, he says this. He says, when we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and our hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. Friends, I want to encourage you, if you're here and you think you're going to make it to God on your own, look out. You have underestimated the gap. And that's what Jesus is trying to show these Pharisees here. He goes, hey, you have missed it. It's so much worse than you can imagine. But there's also a word in this passage for the unrighteous, right? So we were talking about the self-righteous just now, the people who are going to make it there on their own. But what about the people who are bad and they know they're bad? Anybody there in that category? This is me. A word for the unrighteous. The, the reality is the person who is unrighteous and they know it is closer to being in the kingdom of God than the person who is self-righteous. That's what Jesus is trying to show these people. The person who is bad and is aware of it, you're almost there. You're close. When Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, he says, I, I call the uh, right, unrighteous to repentance, not the righteous. The point he's making is not the point he's making is not that the Pharisees are righteous. He's, 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 he's almost making fun of them in a sense. You're going to see that in the rest of Scripture as Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't think the Pharisees are righteous. But what Jesus is pointing out is that the people who are close, the people who I'm calling into my kingdom, the people who are bad and they know they're bad, the people who are sinners and they know they're sinners. Said a different way, an awareness of our sin is a prerequisite to having it forgiven. An awareness of our sin is a prerequisite to having it forgiving. The, the Bible teaches that one of the primary purposes of the law in the Old Testament of God's rules, one of the primary purposes is to show us that we can't live up to it. 
The law shows us how we ought to live and how, what we ought to do and how we ought to, be, uh, how we ought to relate to God, and, but it also shows us that we'll never make it on our own, that we'll never live up to that standard. That's why God sent the law in the first place, so that we would know that we needed a Savior. So if you're here today and you're not a holy person and you know you're not a holy person, if you don't need some preacher to tell you that you're bad and in need of a Savior, if you carry around guilt and shame because of what you've done and what you've said and what you've seen and where you've been, the Bible says you're closer to salvation than you might think. In fact, you're right on the edge. All that's left is for you to put your faith in Jesus. Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. A rough transition, just hang with me. It's a weird movie. It's a weird movie, friends. They did a remake. I don't think it got any less weird. Anyways, the original version from the 70s, you guys know the story, right? Willy Wonka, he owns a chocolate factory and he sends out five golden tickets and uh, these five kids who get the golden ticket, they come for a tour of the chocolate factory. At the beginning of the tour, Willy Wonka, he, he makes them sign a contract saying they're going to follow the rules. He's got a lot of rules in his factory and he doesn't want those rules broken. And so he makes all five kids sign a contract saying they won't break his rules. And what happens? The, the comedy of the movie is throughout the movie, each kid has their own vice uh, that comes to bear, and they end up breaking the rules, right? Augustus Gloop is down there drinking the, the, uh, the, the chocolate uh, river, right? And he's drinking out of the fountain, he gets sucked up into the tube, and he doesn't quite fit. Veruca Salt, I think is her name, it's some weird names this movie. Veruca, she's the mean one, she's like, I want it now, right? And she, she goes in this uh, wonderful musical number about how she deserves everything in the world, and she deserves it right now. Sounds a lot like my three-year-old, it's just, it's spectacular. And she stands where she shouldn't stand on the scale that decides if it's a good egg or bad egg, and it decides she's a bad egg, and down the chute she goes. Violet Beauregard, she eats the gum she's not supposed to eat. She turns into a giant blueberry, right? goes on and on. When we remember this movie, we remember Charlie. Charlie's the good, innocent kid from Humble Roots. And we remember Charlie as being the one who wins. This is a spoiler alert. The movie came out in 1971. It's not my fault. Charlie is the one who, who, who's the good kid. He doesn't break the rules. He doesn't have a vice, right? And yet at the, at the end of the movie, he has this scene where he encounters Willy Wonka, and Willy Wonka says, hey, actually, you broke the rules too. You drank the fizzy drink. You floated up to the sky. We've got to scrub and clean that. You broke the rules, and so you don't win the prize either. And so Charlie leaves dejected. But before he leaves, Charlie does one thing. He comes back in, and he pulls out of his pocket an everlasting gobstopper that Mr. Slugworth had asked him to steal from Wonka, and he puts it back on the, on the table and he leaves. In this movie, what's interesting, our memories tell us that Charlie is a good kid and the other kids are bad, and that may or may not be true. But the reality is, in this movie, all of the kids are rule breakers. All of the kids break the laws. All of the kids violate the contract. But only one kid is aware that he doesn't deserve everything in the world. And so he's the one that gets it. He wins the chocolate factory, not because he followed all the rules, but because he knew he hadn't. In the same way in our faith, all of us are lawbreakers. All of us are rule breakers. All of us have not lived up to the standard that God has set for us. That's a hard truth, but it's the truth. Everyone from the most holy person you know to the worst person you can imagine has missed the mark of God's standard. But the people who inherit the kingdom of God are the people who goes, yeah, I know it, so I need a savior. And they turn to Jesus for that. That's the point Jesus is trying to make to these people in this story at this dinner. Here's the good news. The second part of our passage is that 
with these new people come a new kingdom. Jesus brings a new kingdom with new people. And this reality of Jesus welcoming people into his kingdom that had previously been unavailable to them, this is a central tenet of the new era that Jesus is ushering in. In verses 18 to 22, he has a conversation with these Pharisees, with the scribes of the Pharisees, about, about this kind of new kingdom he's bringing in. This is what it says. He says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting, it says. And they came to him and said, why do John's disciples and disciples of Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus responds with three stories. The first one, he says, can a wedding guest fast while the groom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. The days are going to come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will not fast in that day. In verse 21, though, he says he gives a second illustration. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, the worse tear is made. And again, a third illustration, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For if he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What's Jesus saying? What's, well, this is weird language. I don't know, any of you guys that use wineskins, right? Uh, what, what's he talking about? What's happening here is they ask him a question about fasting. The, the Pharisees in that day, they, they fasted on Mondays and, two, uh, Mondays and Thursdays of every week, okay? That was kind of a rule that they had set up for themselves that they would fast. And it appears that John the Baptist's disciples were doing that too. They, they had kind of followed this tradition that had been set, and they were fasting on, on Mondays and Thursdays of every week. So this scene apparently happens on a Monday or a Thursday, and they're going, hey, we're fasting, they're fasting, why aren't you guys fasting? We're following the rules, they're following the rules, why aren't you following these rules? What's interesting about these rules, though, is that they're mostly made up. The Old Testament law requires one day of fasting a year. You're required to fast on the Day of Atonement and only on the Day of Atonement. Any other fasting was optional. And yet here are the Pharisees requiring 104 or 105 fasts per year. They've taken this, the law and they've amplified it and they've added to it. And Jesus says, hey, listen, you don't fast at a wedding. That doesn't make any sense. And what he's doing is he's giving a, a preview, a prophecy of what's to come. He says, hey, the bridegroom, me, I'm the, I'm the groom, is here, so we should be celebrating. This is a time for joy, and not a time for mourning, not a time for pleading with God. He says, the day's coming when I'm not going to be here. That's a day that you can fast. And he goes on to illustrate his point by giving this picture of a, of a cloth, right? If you had a tear in your cloak, a tear in your clothing, you would patch it. But just like us today in our clothes, they, they shrink when we wash them sometimes, right? At least that's what I tell myself when they don't fit. They shrink when we, when we, when we wash them. And Jesus says, hey, if you take a, a piece of clothing that's already shrunk, right, already shrunk, and you attach on a new piece of cloth that hasn't been shrunk yet, when you wash it, that new patch is going to shrink and it's going to tear away and it's going to make the whole worse. He gives another illustration of wine and wineskins. When they would create wine back then, when they would make wine, they would put it in these leather pouches, these pouches made of animal skins. And the, the animal skins hadn't been stretched yet. And so they would put the wine in it as the wine fermented and the gases released the, the skins, the leather would stretch to accommodate the expanding wine. But if you were to put new wine into a pouch that had already been stretched out, there's no room left for it to stretch. And so he put in new wine, and those gases begin to get released, the pouch bursts. What's Jesus saying? He's saying this. 
then the message that he is bringing is not some new angle on an old teaching. It's not some different way of thinking about what they've always been done. The message that Jesus is bringing is something totally new. He's saying, I'm making this new. Everything is different now. This, we're not reimagining the system that already exists. This is a new system. He's not trying to take what the Pharisees are doing, take what John and his disciples are doing, take any of those things and fit himself into it. He's breaking the paradigm totally. This, he illustrates this by, by sharing a meal with people he has no business sharing a meal with, right? So having a, a meal with people, for, for Jewish people, was considered a, a major deal. It was a super important. It was a, a sign of intimacy and fellowship and friendship. Table fellowship was a big deal, and it carries a sense of unity and connection when you eat with someone. And so by choosing to eat with unclean people, Jesus is shattering their expectations, this may be confusing to us, right? So it's like, well, hold on, hold on. On one hand, we're saying that Jesus is willing to welcome the unrighteous, and he's willing to fellowship with them. He's willing to welcome them into his family and into his kingdom. And yet, on the other hand, I've heard it said that Jesus is actually making the standard of righteousness even higher than it was. Maybe you've read the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So which is it? Do we have to be even more righteous than these really righteous people? Or do we not have to be righteous at all? Which one is it? How do we reconcile this? 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. The cross is how we reconcile this. At the cross, an exchange takes place. Jesus goes to the cross at the end of his life, and he's nailed to that cross. And in that moment, a switch happens. We give him our sin, our shortcomings, our failures, our guilt, our shame. All of that gets placed on Jesus. And in return, he gives us his perfect righteousness. There's an exchange that happens. He made him who knew no sin, and that's Jesus, to be sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. It's almost as if he wraps a cloak around us, wraps a new robe around our dingy, dirty bodies that is clean and pure and spotless, fit for the red carpet type of an outfit. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in this story this morning that Jesus uses the illustrations of a wedding, of a garment, and of, a wine, of wine to show us what the kingdom of God will be like. You see, the night Jesus was arrested, as you get to the end of his life, he's sitting in the upper room with his disciples, and they have a meal. We call it the Last Supper, right? And the Bible says that he, Jesus, took bread and broke it, and he gave thanks for it and passed it around, and they all took a bite from it. And then it says he took wine, and they all drank from the cup together. He says this at the end of this meal. He says, I tell you, disciples, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, Jesus knows the cross is what's next. Jesus knows the cross is what's going to make those disciples and every disciple that follows after them that's what's going to make them righteous is what happens on the cross. And Jesus knows that one day we'll gather with him for a feast. In heaven, the Bible says. 
And we'll gather around a table, the scripture says, and we'll celebrate a feast. The Bible calls it a wedding feast in Revelation chapter 19, almost the end of the Bible. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. At the end of the age, church, there will be another meal, much like the one that we read about today. And at that meal, Jesus, again, will be the centerpiece. He'll be the star of the show. Everyone will be gathered around him. And at at that meal, unrighteous people will be there too. You and I, who have put our faith in Jesus, will be gathered around that table too. The only difference is we will be made righteous. Jesus isn't going to leave us where we are. In fact, it says that some of our righteous deeds are going to be what makes us pure there, not because we've earned our way into heaven, because Jesus got us in there and he changed us. And we will have lived a different life than the one we would have lived apart from him. And we're going to be clothed in fine linen, gathered around this meal, celebrating Jesus who made it all possible. Church, the point of this passage, the point of this text, is that it's way better to be unrighteous than it is to be self-righteous. But the ultimate gift is to be made righteous by Christ. And he offers that freely to any and all who would receive it. And so the response for you and for me, whether you're here, no matter which category you belong in, maybe you belong in the unrighteous category. You're like, I'm bad and I know I'm bad. Great. You're ready to trust Jesus. Maybe you're in the self-righteous category. You go, I think I can make it. The answer is the same. You need to trust Jesus instead of your own works and behavior for salvation. Maybe you're here, you're a Christian, you're a believer. You've, you recognize that Jesus and Jesus alone can pay the price for your sins and you're following him with your life. That's great. The answer is the same. Continue to cling to Jesus for your righteousness. Don't go back to the old ways. Don't go back to the old wineskins. Instead, continue to cling to him and him alone for salvation. Jesus is bringing a new kingdom where his righteousness and not our own is the ticket in. And so let's remember God's holiness, let's be honest about the depths of our sin, and then let us cling to Christ alone and the righteousness that he gives us so that we might enter his kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the confidence we can have in your word. I thank you for the confidence we can have in our salvation because it's not based on us. I thank you for the fact that when we sing in heaven hallelujah to the Lamb, when we gather for that glorious wedding feast, I thank you that we'll be there not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but we'll be there because the Lamb was slaughtered on our behalf. So Lord, would you help us to believe that? That's hard to believe. That's not the way we're wired. That's not the way we think about things. Would you help us to believe it? And then Lord, would you help us to respond to it by faith? So Lord, we are going to sing now. We're going to worship you just as we will in heaven, not because 
We deserve to be in your presence, not because we're good enough, but because you have made us righteous by your blood. And so thanks for this time together. Receive this worship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.